morning. Today's scripture reading is from Luke um, 16, verse 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, then they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Thank you, Tanya. Uh, Have you ever had a week at work where... There was something that you you had to do at work uh, that you just really didn't want to have to do. Something you just really, you you woke up every morning like, do I really have to deal with this? Do I really have to handle this? Uh, Because I'll be honest with you, as I was getting ready for this sermon on Sunday, all week I woke up and do I I really have to do this? And I kind of really just wanted to go back to bed. We're continuing in our series called Barriers. We just have a, a Barriers to Belief. We just have a couple of, of messages left in this series. And the idea is we, we all have barriers. We all have barriers in life, you know, barriers that hinder us from being able to have or experience things that, that we, would, we would like to have, right? So uh, I, I used a couple of different examples. Maybe you would love to have been a doctor, but you pass out at the sight of blood, and so that's a barrier, right? That, that hinders you. Uh, everything about being a doctor sounds great, except for you just pass out when you see blood, so you can't do it. Or, or maybe you would love to go on a Caribbean cruise, uh, but you, you get sick at the slightest, slightest bit of motion. And so even though you, everything about the trip is just totally up your alley, uh, I mean, you just love to sit around and do nothing and eat and drink. And, I mean, that's totally your kind of deal. Uh, but there's this barrier that hinders you from doing that, right? Well, today, or today, and over the last several weeks, we've been looking at barriers to belief that I believe for many in our culture, uh, there are many who would really like to believe in God, would really like to, to, to follow God, and there are many things about Christianity that, that really draw them to God, um, but there are some barriers. There are some barriers that hinder them 
from being able to fully embrace their faith. And we've been dealing with a number of these different barriers. Uh, we've looked at the exclusivity of Christianity. Why? You know, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Doesn't that seem really exclusive? Right? In our, in our society today, that, that issue is a barrier. Uh, we've, we've looked at, you know, what about the fact that throughout history, uh, Christians have been responsible for, for lots of injustice in the world? Like, you know, how, why would I become a Christian if that's the case? These are some of the barriers that we've been dealing with. Um, but today, I, I think we're dealing with the thorniest of all the barriers. And the, the issue that we're dealing with today, and I'll, I'll just come right out here and say it, is how can you believe in a God who sends people to hell? I mean, can you see why I, I didn't want all week? I'm like, I wake up in the morning, I'm like, am I really preaching an entire sermon on hell? I mean, just, just saying the word, doesn't it just kind of, doesn't it make your skin crawl? Just sort of this visceral, this visceral reaction. And, and I mean, if that's true for me, I'm a pastor. And, and if that's true for me as a Christian, how much more so must this be for those outside the faith? And they look and they, and they, and they say, how can you, as a Christian, how do you hold this sort of contradiction in your head? How can you worship and love this God who, who sends people to hell? I think just it doesn't seem to make any sense. And what I'd like to ask is if, if you can just bear with me, if we can find a way to get past that initial sort of just visceral reaction, what I believe we're actually going to see is that the Bible's teaching on hell does not in any way take away from the depths of God's love, that in fact the doctrine of hell actually, actually emphasizes and highlights and, and shows how deep God's love really is. I'm going to begin by looking at a, at a cartoon. If we can pull this, this cartoon up here. Nick, this is a, a cartoon. I'll just like to take a look at it for a minute. This came out in about 2010, 2011. This is President Obama, and uh, this is after the BP oil spill. You guys remember a number of years back? And I, I picked this cartoon, actually. I was thinking of, of picking a more contemporary cartoon. But I'm not interested at all in, in, the, in the message of this cartoon. This has not, I'm not going to be political here at all. Uh, and I, I thought, I thought if, I, you know, if I did some sort of contemporary cartoon with Hillary or Trump, like, forget it. I've lost you guys, right? There's no way you're going to be able to go with me. So, you know, I picked, you know, Obama's not controversial at all. So I figured I'd just go with that, right? So, okay. No, forget about the politics. It has nothing to do with the politics here. What's going on here? This is after the, the oil spill, the BP oil spill. And let me just read to you. It says, Obama saying, the administration will be all over BP's neck. Uh, and, then, and then in the next picture, you see Obama. He's massaging the back, the neck of a BP executive. And the executive is saying, a little more to the right. A little more to the right. Okay. Now, Here's what I want us to see. Don't worry about the message of this, whether you like it or agree with it or whatever. is isn't the point. What I want us to notice here is how the cartoon gets its message across. Because, you see, when we look at this, we instinctively know that this is not to be taken literally. We just know this. I mean, you just, we, we just know this. I mean, nobody, nobody here thinks that, that Obama actually gave a BP executive a back rub. Nobody, nobody thinks that. We instinctively know that this cartoon is not intended to be taken literally. And what we need to realize as we come to the parables of Jesus, and particularly the parable of the rich man 
in hell, we need to realize that parables in Jesus' day functioned very much the same way that cartoons do in our own day. That, that in, a, in, a, in a day long before me, uh, print media and all that sort of thing, parables, and, and they're not exactly the same, but they, they functioned in a very rough way in the same way that, that, that cartoons did. And, and so, of course, to say that, I'm, I'm not, of course, saying that parables are supposed to be funny. Uh, no, in fact, not all cartoons are funny. I remember, I think it was in college or high school or something I read, uh, read a Pulitzer Prize winning cartoon book called Mouse. I think it was called by Art Spiegelman. And it's, it's, it's a cartoon book, but it's, it's about the Holocaust. And it is not meant to be funny. So, so, so parables, I mean, if they're like cartoons, doesn't necessarily mean that they're that they're supposed to be funny. But what I want us to see here is that parables function just like cartoons. And what we need to realize is that that this parable of the rich man in hell is not intended to be taken literally. And and because if if you take it literally, you can understand why there would be so many barriers to belief. You can understand why. Because, well, we'll just start with the fact that the Bible uses all kinds of imagery to describe hell. And, and if, you, if you take all of the imagery that the Bible uses to describe hell, literally, you, you run into just, you know, some interesting contradictions. Like, you know, the Bible says that, that hell is a place of darkness. Uh, but then it also says that hell is a place of fire. And if you're overly literal, you're just like, well, how does that work? And, and so, you know, and it's interesting to see how some people try to resolve some of those issues. And I think it's just missing the point that, that it's, it's not trying to be literal. But, but the other barrier that, that that sets up for us I think even the bigger barrier, is that it paints God as sort of this sadistic, uh, sinister, you know, grotesque individual who, who loves to see people tortured or something like that. Now, to say that this is figurative does not mean uh, that it is not referring to something literal. So to say that the language is, is figurative here of hell is not the same as saying, oh, well, then therefore that means that Jesus didn't really believe in hell. It's all, it's all figurative. And sometimes some people think this. They think, well, if you don't take it literally, then that must mean that you don't really believe that there's a literal hell. But, but think about this for a minute. That, that's not how cartoons work either. I mean, if we can go back to that cartoon, Nick. Um, again, we don't, we don't take this literally. We, we don't think... You know, we don't think that Obama, which I don't think he maybe he did literally say this. I don't think he did. The administration will be all over BP's neck. And we don't think he literally said that. And, and we, don't, we don't think that, that uh, again, we don't think that Obama literally gave uh, some BP executive a back rub. But we do know that it refers to something literal. It refers that the cartoonist is saying, I, you know, this I believe actually happened. Of course, the, the literal truth which the cartoonist is pointing towards, is he's claiming, in his own opinion, that in this case, Obama cowered to the conservatives. That he literally cowered to the conservatives politically. So, so just because it's figurative doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. It's pointing to something literal. Another example of this with, with figurative language would be something like nicknames. Right? So uh, if you think about a nickname, we, we don't take the nickname literally, but we do see that it refers to, to something literal. An example would be Lou Gehrig, has the nickname of the Iron Horse. Uh, now, nobody thinks that Lou Gehrig was actually a horse uh, or that he was made of iron, um, but that doesn't mean the name doesn't mean anything. It's pointing to, to a literal reality, and that is that I think that Lou Gehrig was a big man who was very resilient. right? So it's, it's pointing to something 
literal. So when we look at this parable of, of hell, though we don't take it figuratively, we can look at it and look to see, well, what, is it, what might it actually be telling us about hell? What, what, what might it be showing us within this figurative, figurative language? Now, one of the things that is one of the advantages of figurative language is that it allows us to say something substantive about something without getting too specific. You see, the the Bible uses all kinds of figurative language to describe both heaven and hell, and presumably one of the reasons for this is because the literal realities are, are, are probably just beyond our ability to comprehend. And so figurative language allows you to say something substantive without getting too, too specific. Um, and, and there's dangers that we run into when we try to get too specific. I mean, just one example of, of where we get, when we try to get too specific, it gets dangerous, is annihilationism, which I won't go into, but I think it's, it's an unbiblical position, and it happens because, because they're trying to get too specific in their understanding of it. So we need to back up, and we need to, to make sure that whatever we say is, is within the confines of what Scripture is saying. So we want to pull back, and I think what we can say from within this passage about what, 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 what does this figurative language uh, point us to is this, that hell, in, 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 at least in broad strokes, is the absence of the presence of God. Hell is the absence of the presence of God. Now you're saying, okay, where did you get this from, from this parable? Where does this come from? Well, I want us to look at, at some of this in detail here a little bit. We notice here in, in verse 23. It says, in hell, where he, the rich man, was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this life. You see, he's saying, put, put water on my tongue. He's, he's talking about this extreme thirst that he has. And, of course, one of the things that we discover throughout the Scriptures is that thirst is an image that is often used to refer to longing for God, longing for the presence of God. Let me just read you a few verses that highlight this. Psalm Psalm 42, verse 1, one that many of you will know quite well. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go? And meet with God. Verse, uh, see, Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 143. And let me read a little bit here. Oh Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment. For no one living is righteous before you. The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. So we see this imagery over and over again of thirsting for God. It's, it's, it's not being in the presence of God. So I think that we can, at least in, in broad terms, 
highlight that, that, that hell is the absence of the presence of God. Now, we might say at this point, okay, okay, that's, that's helpful. Um, that, that's helpful. Uh, but, but why doesn't Jesus just say that? I mean, if that's what it is, why doesn't Jesus just say hell is the absence of the presence of God? And I, I think the reason for it is this. You see, I think Jesus would want us to realize that this language is figurative so that our intellectual anxiety might be assuaged. Okay, so in fact, this whole series, that's really what this whole series is about, is assuaging our intellectual anxiety. So he would want us to know that this is, is figurative so that our intellectual anxiety would be assuaged about the kind of God he is and all that sort of thing. But Jesus does not want our emotional anxiety to be assuaged. In other words, let's just put it this way. I mean, if Jesus just says, hell is the absence of the presence of God, does that really grab you? I mean, some of you it might, but I think for many in our culture, it's like, oh, okay, I'm not really into God anyway, so, you know, what difference does it make? You know, absence of the presence of God, I mean, it's just, it, it just doesn't, really, doesn't really get you. So why does he put it this way? And, and I'll, I'll just put it very straightly. He's trying to scare the hell out of us. I mean, he, he, again, he wants us to see this as figurative so that our intellectual anxiety may be assuaged. But, but he does not want to assuage our emotional anxiety. He wants, us, he wants us to say, look, you may not really get, you know, you may not be able to comprehend what it would be like to really be completely outside the presence of God, but you do not want to find out. You don't want to know because the reality, I mean, everybody, if you live in this world, you are surrounded by the presence of God. There is a common grace that is in everything that, that, that moves and sustains everything in, in this world. So even if you claim you don't know God or like God or anything like that, I mean, his grace is sustaining everything. And so it's a way of saying you, 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 you may not really be able to comprehend what it would be like to be outside the presence of God, but boy, you do not want, it's, you don't want to know what it is. And so it, it, yeah, we, we, we want to see that this is figurative so that our intellectual anxiety may be assuaged, but, but not our emotional anxiety. If you have that visceral reaction, that's good. I don't think we're ever supposed to lose that. So then we, we may say, okay, well, okay, that's helpful. Uh, so maybe God isn't this, you know, sadistic kind of character uh, that creates this torture place or something like that. But still, why does he send people there? I mean, you know, especially if it really is as, as horrific as Jesus seems to want us to feel, why, why would he send us there? Why would he send anybody there? I think we find an answer if we probe a little bit deeper into specifically why the rich man is there. Why is the rich man there? And, and, of course, what we discover is that the reason that the rich man is there is because he has failed to show justice to the poor. That's really what this is. So you have this, this wealthy man who is just completely overlooked. He has completely ignored this beggar by, by his feet, uh, has, has treated him as if he has no dignity, treated him as if he's, he's a nobody, and, and this parable, is, it's about justice. It's about God, God making, making things right. And I think what's interesting is that, you know, in, in this parable, I don't know if you notice this, but the rich man doesn't have a name. 
Lazarus has a name. But you see, in the real world, it was probably the other way around. Everybody knew the name of the rich man, but who knows about this beggar? He doesn't have a name. He doesn't have dignity. And so, so, so Jesus is, 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 is shifting this. And, and so, again, the, the reason why the rich man is in hell is because he, he, he didn't care. He didn't, show, he didn't show respect for. He didn't show love. He didn't love his neighbor as himself. And, and, and so that's, that's why he's here. You know, last, last week I was talking about how uh, within Western consciousness, the whole Western idea of care for the poor and, and, and just that even that concept within Western society was shaped largely by the influence of Christianity. That we take that for granted, just, just within Western culture at least, that by far the, the predominant influence that shaped Western consciousness such that we even have the concept of caring for the poor came from within Christianity, and it comes from passages like this. So the reason why the rich man is there is because he has failed to show justice to the poor. He has treated Lazarus. Uh, like he's some sort of second-class citizen. And so then we'll say, well, okay, right, but, but, but isn't God about grace? I mean, isn't God about, you know, forgiving, right? Okay, so Lazarus, or excuse me, the rich man is a sinner, but, but God's about showing grace and forgiveness, right? I mean, and doesn't it seem, I mean, like the rich man's repentant, right? I mean, look at him, and he's, he clearly doesn't want to be there. Right, he's he's calling up to Abraham. He's he's saying, "Please, you know, I don't want to be. You know, I'm longing for my 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 thirst to be quenched. You know, there's a sense in which he's saying, I long for the presence of God.' Right, and then he's saying, "Please, can can you go tell my brothers? I don't want my brothers to be here. Like I've made a terrible mistake. I mean, it seems like he's being repentant, doesn't he? But I want you to notice something here." When he asks Abraham to, to bring him water, what, did he, what does he say? He says, get Lazarus to come bring me water. And, and then when he says, you know, go tell my brothers, go tell them about this. What he says, send Lazarus to go tell my brothers. You see, he's still treating Lazarus like he's a second-class citizen. I mean, what is Lazarus going to say to the brothers? It's like, what is he, what is he going to say? I mean, he's, the, the reason that he's in hell is because he's treating, he treated Lazarus like a second-class citizen, and he's still trying to treat him like that. And so what we see here is that, is that the chasm that is fixed between heaven and hell just reflects the chasm that is in his heart. There's a chasm in his heart. His heart is hardened. His heart is unrepentant. His heart just cannot be breached with God. He says he wants to be with God, but he really doesn't want to follow God. The chasm between heaven and hell, just, it just reflects the chasm that is already going on within a person's, a person's heart. I think one of the, the corollaries of this is that it's, <laughs> this is a condition of his heart that existed beforehand, and he still has. And, and I think one of the corollaries of this is that we have to be really careful then about when going around and saying that we know for certain sort of who's in and who's out. We've got to be careful with that. There, there is some criteria which we can use for approximation, but in the end, it's, it's God that knows the condition of a person's heart. So we've got to be really careful about claiming that we know who's in and who's out. In fact, I, I think 
I think there's a freedom in not knowing. I think God frees us of, of, of needing to know that. It's, it's, a condition, it's a condition of the heart. And because it's a condition of the heart, here's what we need to realize. That God only sends people to hell in the sense that he simply honors their heart. He simply honors the condition of their heart. So as C.S. Lewis has famously said, the gates of hell are locked on the inside. So I think there are two things that we need to see as just sort of summing up that can help us in terms of understanding what hell is and this barrier that we have. And, 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 and that is, first of all, uh, that, that because this language is, is figurative, uh, we, we don't want to paint God as this sort of grotesque, sadistic character who loves to torture people. That's clearly not what it is. And secondly, we need to see that, that God sends people to hell only in the sense that he simply honors the condition of their heart. You know, in, in, in Romans chapter 1, Paul, uh, Romans 1, he talks about, about judgment coming up upon humanity. And the way judgment is communicated is God, he just hands them over to their sin. Just hands them over to it. So, so again, God sends people to hell only in the sense that he honors the condition of their heart. I think, however, we can go even further than this because hopefully as we've gone through this, you see something else emerges in this, in this parable. And I think what emerges from this is that though it is certainly true and we can understand why hell would be a barrier to belief, what we also need to see is that if there weren't a hell, that ought to be a barrier as well. If there weren't a hell, that that ought to be a barrier to belief as well. Because we got to realize, again, what's going on here? God is, he's bringing justice. He's bringing justice. You know, you know most people in, in, in our culture will say, oh, I, I'm for justice. Right? I'm all for justice. Um, but what, what we don't realize is that justice and judgment are the same thing. Justice and judgment are the same thing. In fact, in Hebrew, the word mishpat uh, is one of the main words used for this. And it can be translated either way. You'll find mishpat, sometimes it's translated as justice, sometimes it's translated as, as judgment. And the reason for this is that, well, if you think about it, the only difference between justice and judgment is which side of the gavel are you on. When the, the just judge lays down that gavel, you know, you get, you get taken advantage of, somebody steals $15,000 from you, you go to court, and, and, and it's a just judge, right? I mean, if you, you lost $15,000 from somebody and you go to court and... And, uh, and the judge is like, oh, hey, no, I, you know, I don't want to judge this guy. Come on. We've got to show grace, right? We've got to show grace. And you'd be like, I don't know if this judge is, is worthy of my respect, right? This is not a just judge. When that just judge lays down the gavel and, and awards you the, the $15,000, well, that's justice for you and judgment for them. It just depends on which side of the, of the gavel that you're on. And so what we see going on here is that, is, you see, God would not be worthy of our worship and our praise if he didn't judge, if he didn't bring justice. I mean, think about it this way. I mean, would it really be fair for God to let the rich man into heaven when he's just going to go around treating Lazarus like a, like a servant? I mean, would that be fair to, to Lazarus? 
I mean, that sounds, does that sound like heaven to you? I mean, you, you know, you spent your whole life, this guy just looking down on you, and, and now you're in heaven, and the same guy is doing the same thing to you? I mean, would that be right? Would that be fair? Would that be just? You see, if, if, there, if there weren't a hell, that, that ought to be just as much of a barrier. In fact, what's interesting is that for many people in our world, the concept of God's grace is the barrier. You see, for, for us in, in Western society, we, we struggle with the concept of judgment and hell. That's, that's the barrier to belief. But actually, there are lots of places in this world where they don't struggle with the concept of a God of judgment. They get that. They long for that. They long for a God of judgment, and they long for a God of justice. What they can't figure out, and what is a barrier to their belief, is this whole concept of grace. They don't understand that. You know, why is it, I think, that, that predominantly, in, so let me actually, let me put it this way. So this series is called Barriers to Belief, um, but really what it should be called is Barriers to Belief for Suburban Americans. That's really what this series is. It's Barriers to Belief for Suburban Americans, because if you, if you did this series in other parts of the world, there'd be a whole different set of barriers which you would need to address. Well, why is it that in America, you know, what we struggle, we don't understand that, you know, a God of judgment, and, and I'll tell you why. Here's why I think in America we struggle with this concept of judgment. It's because in America we take for granted the justice that we have. We take it for granted in America. I mean, not that America is perfect. It's all kinds of ways in which injustice is is still present in our society. I certainly don't want to insinuate that that's not the case. But I think certainly for most suburban Americans, compared to the rest of the world, we, we kind of experience, you know, it's a just society. And, and so the concept of judgment just kind of seems like an unwelcome intrusion on our progressive, you know, modern, modern culture. But imagine if you live in a country where it wouldn't be uncommon for armed soldiers to come in to rape your wives, steal your children, and kill your husbands. Do you think you might long for a a God of judgment? A God of justice? Miroslav Volf is a, a theologian at Yale Divinity School. He's Croatian. He puts it this way. He says, the idea of a God who doesn't judge can only exist in the quiet of a suburban home, in a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent. Such an idea will invariably die, along with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. So you see this this barrier to belief, it kind of goes both ways. You see, there's really two barriers, and I think that's interesting, isn't it? That there are these two human impulses. Some of us more predominantly long for a God of grace and forgiveness. We think that makes sense. Others of us long for a God of judgment and a God of justice. We, we think that makes sense. And, of course, what's interesting is that you find exactly these two impulses moving through the Old Testament Scripture you find these, these exact two impulses just kind of coming um, kind of in conflict and in tension with one another. So you, you have Psalms 
where they are longing for justice and for judgment, and they're, they're longing for God to make right the wrongs that have been done to them by other nations and, and, and whatnot. And you find this over and over again. You know, God, when are you going to bring judgment? When are you going to bring justice on these people? When are you going to do this? I mean, over and over again, you, you find this throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And then you also find this other impulse. You, you find them crying out to God saying, oh, God, uh, okay, we've messed up too. Um, God, can you please show grace? Can you please show mercy? Can you please show forgiveness? And so, so through the Old Testament scriptures, these two impulses, they, they just, just sort of sit there in tension. And the question is, what is it going to be? Is, is God going to be a God of, of judgment, or is he going to be a God of compassion? That's the question which just kind of emerges out of the Old Testament scriptures. What, what is he? Is he going to be, at the end of the day, is he going to be a God of judgment or is he going to be a God of compassion, right? Well, we'll put it this way. Again, suppose you, you're in a, in a courtroom scene and uh, the, the plaintiff comes forward and, the, and, and accuses the, uh, the defendant. The defendant maybe was an employee of theirs and, and the employee stole $15,000 from them. Uh, and so they, they, go to the, they go to the courtroom. And then, and then you come to discover that the reason the employee stole $15,000 is because his wife has cancer and the insurance bills have gotten too big and they'll no longer cover anymore. So the judge, what is, what is the judge going to do? Well, it seems like the judge has two options, right? The judge can either be compassionate or he can be just. So the judge could, could, could say to the defendant, oh my gosh, your, your wife has cancer. That is terrible. Please, you don't have to give the money back. Go ahead. But what about the, the, the poor guy who just lost 15000 I mean, is, is it really his fault? Is it his responsibility? I mean, there's compassion. But where's the justice? And the judge could go the other direction. And the judge could say, look, I'm sorry. You stole $15,000. I realize your wife has cancer, but right is right. Wrong is wrong. What you did is wrong. I'm sorry. You've got to pay it back. Justice, judgment. But then you're thinking to yourself, well, where's the compassion? The heart of the gospel is that there is a third option. And that is that the only way in which the judge can can show compassion and yet be just at the same time is if his compassion comes at his own expense. So imagine the third option. The, the, the judge turns to the defendant and says, you, you can go. You're forgiven. You don't have to pay the $15,000. And then the judge turns to the plaintiff and pulls out his own wallet and gives him $15,000. In just a few moments, we're going to take communion. What is communion all about? Communion is about the fact that in Christianity, and only in Christianity, do we see that God has chosen the third option. The heart of the gospel is that we have a God who looks down upon this world and sees the injustice of this world sees that it is rampant throughout our 
our world and, and, and sees, sees it on a grand scale, sees it on a local level, sees it in your own heart. And the heart of the gospel is that, is that God is a God who must judge sin. He wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be a righteous God if he didn't, if he didn't judge it. But he's also a God who wants to pour out compassion on his people. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. On On the cross, God took upon himself the judgment that we deserve. You see, at the end of the day, when if we really struggle, you see, if we struggle, uh, if we struggle with the concept of judgment, um, it's because we haven't really experienced a lot of injustice in our lives. Not to the degree that others have. If we struggle with that, it's because we haven't really experienced. We haven't really experienced injustice much. And. If you struggle, if you struggle with the concept of, let's see, see if I got that right. Yeah, well, either way, if you struggle with the concept of, of hell, uh, what, what it also reveals is that you don't realize your own sinfulness. You don't realize the depths of your own sin. You see, you, you, you don't realize that, that you deserve to be judged. And the heart of the gospel is that we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. But God, if we will turn, if we will truly repent, you see, if we will truly do what, what the rich man did not do, and that was really acknowledge what his sin was, if we are willing to do that, then what the Bible teaches us is that God will experience hell for us. You see, Jesus, when he's on the cross, what does he say? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, on the cross, Jesus experienced the full abandonment from God the Father. This is why we say that Jesus descended into hell, because he experienced what hell was all about, and he experienced it so that we wouldn't have to. The ushers, please come forward. Dear God, we come before you, and I pray that God, we would turn the finger that we have been pointing at you. And we would turn it towards ourselves. God, I pray that I pray that we would see that judgment and hell just simply reveals the beauty of your love and the beauty of your grace. you're willing to experience it for us so that no one has to if they'll just turn to you. God, I pray that that we would come before you convicted of our sin. God, that we wouldn't hide from it. God, that that we would know, Lord, that you really do love us despite our sin. God, perhaps we're here today and we've struggled with the concept of hell because 
somewhere deep down inside, we, we know that we deserve judgment. God, I pray that today we would, we would be free to, to acknowledge that, be humbled by that, and then free to experience your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name.